Today's read, Midnight and the Meaning of Love by Sister Soldier, Part 2, Japan Story, Chapter 13, 2. I was feeling funky, unwashed and uncleaned. As the sun heated up, I could feel my underarms beginning to sweat some and tingle. I looked myself over as I moved. If someone who had not seen me yesterday saw me right now, they would probably be fooled into believing I was fresh because my clothes looked crisp. The light wrinkles had fallen out with motion. Even the watermarks on my Tims were dried up, but I knew the real deal. The call of the crows brought my head up. Three times bigger than Brooklyn birds of the same type, they were deep black, blueberry black, and their voices carried and echoed as they called out over the cornfields. Soon, the green and gold of the cornstalks ceased, and I was greeted by fields of open, new green grass sprouting out of rich, dark soil. The flight of a white-tailed eagle made my steps stop. The massive bird had remarkable wings. It was the way she worked them that made me pause. It was a slow pump, not a flutter, and the movements were both musical thrusts and menacing in the air. I watched her head turn down and her talons curl, and beautifully she swooped down into the field, grasping a small rabbit before taking a calm flight back into the atmosphere. That's what I'm doing, I thought to myself. I'm grabbing my girl on the first swoop and flying out into the atmosphere. Who's going to stop me, I asked myself. No one, I spoke aloud. Where the new grass ended, there was a fence where I saw a serpent at play. He didn't look frightening to me. His movement was effortless, like water moving in a stream over and under and between smooth rocks. I thought about Chiasa. The serpent won't see her. I joked to myself, she's invisible. Besides, like she said, he didn't want nothing to do with us. His occupation was soaking up the warmth of the sun and what was probably the heated metal of the fence. Should an eagle eye catch him in the sunlight, the serpent would become nothing but a tasty side dish. Without warning, I was walking into a pink storm. I had known the sandstorms of my Sudan and the snowstorms of New York. What surrounded and swirled around me now were pink petals as plentiful as raindrops being carried by a west wind and blown about beautifully. It was a field of sakura trees, the magnificent cherry blossom that my wife loved so much. There were endless rows of them before me. I knew then that I was getting closer to her. Even if she was still three miles away, the beauty of the Sakura oasis would easily draw her out of her bed and into the fields. I plucked some petals off my shoulders and placed them in my pocket for no known reason other than the fact that they had fallen on me, green and gold, and then light green, and then pink, and now brilliant yellow and rich dark brown as a field of sunflowers came into view, lifting 5,000 pretty faces facing the sun with the dark brown eyes at its center. I realized I felt seduced. Can a man actually be seduced by nature? I asked myself. If not, why were the expansive fields of crops, trees, and flowers bringing me into a deeper love of my woman? I felt warm, my blood boiling, my pulse picking up, and love spreading and moving in my chest. On what I hoped would be my final mile on this journey, a scent so sensational and sensual wafted through the air, brilliant yellow fields turned purple. It was my last mile, a mile of lavender in every direction. 
I looked toward the skies and said, Alhamdulillah. That's when I saw an explosion of colorfully painted kites, one of them white with purple edging and a long streamer painted in English. Welcome, Mayonaka. Inside? Only on the inside. I cried. My eyes followed the seemingly never-ending strings that extended from the kite's bottom and down a mile to an area of tall grass. I turned to Chiasa, who was 40 feet behind me. I pointed toward the sky. I see it, she called out, excited for me. She put her palms around her lips to make her light voice carry. I told you, I have perfect vision. I dropped my backpack from my shoulders and went into it, pulling out my fresh kicks. Hurriedly, I wrapped my Tims inside one of my used t-shirts and dropped them inside my backpack. I checked my pants pockets, felt the shape of my switchblade, zipped my backpack, and put it back on as Chiasa caught up. You see that tree over there? She pointed to the other side of the road. I nodded. I'm gonna mark it. That will be our meetup spot only if you don't see me before three o'clock today. And don't forget, when you see me, don't act familiar unless I do, she said, straight-faced. Gambate, she wished me good luck. Oh, and hand me that. I'll bury it, she said, referring to my backpack. You got your passport? Your wallet, your keys, and everything essential on you, right? She questioned. Right, I agreed. Right there. Under that tree, the same place I'm marking for three o'clock, she said, very self-assured. I let go of the pack and set off in the direction of all the kites and their several colorful strings. Beware, she said. Don't let love get you caught up in an ambush. Her words slowed me down, reminded me that I am not the rabbit. I'm the leopard. Let me get my rope, I called Chiasa back. Pockets full, my rope wrapped around my waist loosely and hidden beneath my hoodie. My hands were free. I made my mind shift from longing lover to warm-hearted warrior. hidden in some tall grass before I could reach the kite strings, I spotted a parked vehicle. I crouched. The ignition was off. I pulled my gloves from my back pockets and put them on. I duck walked closer up on it, but not too close. I pushed the tall grass aside to see if the car wheels were flat. What condition was the car in? Whose was it? Or was it simply abandoned? The wheels were soiled but solid. The car was polished and new, with just a light coat of dust and dew over it. The driver's seat was in the reclined position, and the other seats were normal. There was moisture on the back window that fogged my ability to view everything clearly. From my front pockets, I removed two black bandanas and tied them both together. I duck walked to the driver's door. The window was lowered by two inches, suggesting that the driver was still inside and probably asleep. Why else would everything be so still and silent? And why else would he be parked so far from any residence? I checked the time. It was 6.56 a.m. In one swift motion, I opened the door and sealed the bandana around the sleeping driver's eyes. Before he could get his eyes fully opened or his words outright, I stuffed a white washcloth in his mouth and tied him to his seat with my rope. 
squirming, he kicked his feet, but could only hit them against his pedals. I walked around the other side, opened the door, and picked up the keys from underneath ten or so candy wrappers on the front passenger seat. On the floor was a walkie-talkie. I lifted it, then closed the door to stop the low hum of the door open buzzer. I turned the knobs to the off position and pushed the walkie-talkie into my hoodie pocket. He was Shata. Same as his photo, I thought to myself, at least two more to go. Ichiro and Makoto, I thought and plotted. When I arrived at the kite strings, I discovered that there were no human hands holding them and waiting eagerly for me. As I squatted down to inspect, I saw that they were lodged beneath a few scattered boulders. The grass rustled, not the sound of scattering squirrels, leaping frogs, or bouncing bunnies. It was this pound and sound of men's boots. Still squatting, I did a 180, only to see an angry-faced Japanese man spotting me at the same time that I spotted him. His hand gripped tightly round the base of a baseball bat, his clenched fingers turning maroon. Unafraid, he began he began barreling toward me. Purposely, I didn't move. His courage was foolish. I would come up with a kick, relieving him of his weapon, followed by a precise strike that would send his head to an uncomfortable slant and break his fucking neck. I calculated I calculated that his next step would bring him right in the target of my kickspan. When he lifted his leg to take it, something sped overhead too rapidly for my eyes to detect and lodged in his left shoulder right above his heart. His self-assured grimace turned to shock. His shock turned to paralysis. He fell backward into the dirt. After the thump of his body, there was only silence. I remained squatted for more to come. Minutes passed. No more came. My eyes surveyed and measured every blade of grass, every rock, every leaf, and every branch. There was only the pretty puma perched behind me. Don't touch him, she said her voice as soft and soothing as a mother reading a children's story to a toddler. He's not dead. He's asleep. He won't move a muscle for six hours or more. Move on with your mission, she ordered me. Awed, I stood up slowly, a hundred percent certain that what my eyes missed, her eyes would not. I brought the walkie-talkie over to her and turned it over along with the keys, I knew that whoever was holding the other unit or units would be communicating in Japanese. She would handle that. She and I exchanged no words, only a brief stare. Her eyes were powerful and peaceful. All at once, she was like a woman after the orgasm, and there was not a trace of the playful person, and there was no trace of fear. I respected her. Beyond the brief gathering of trees and tall grass where Shata had parked, and beyond the dirt where the other guy had fallen, was a field of flowers. With the light wind, I heard the jingling of tiny bells nestled in the field, bending over with a basket between the orchids and the daisies, was the Nepali cheetah. I searched for any movement beside her or behind her or in the cabins off in the distance, but I saw no one else, so I approached. When she straightened her back, she saw me. Her mouth opened wider than her eyes were then. Her diamond sparkled even from the distance. I picked up my pace. She waited. When I reached and faced her, she gasped as though she had never seen me even once before, her eyes a mixture of both surprise and fear. My lord, she said, 
You almost made my heart stop. She stood, holding her hand over her heart. Akimi is going to be so happy. She shifted her energy, releasing her initial intimidation and relaxing some. Where is she? I spoke my first words, which came out more urgent and less cool. She's in the back of the house, making another kite. Did you see? I saw, I interrupted. I wrote the English words, she said proudly. Point in the direction where my wife is, I requested. I was beyond talking and delaying. I can, she offered. Just point, I told her. So she did. Where's Makoto and the others, I asked to know and to see what she knew. Today is Sunday, so there won't be any field workers. Oh, Akimi's grandmother, Hana-san, sent them to a hotel one town over. She said that she didn't like their black suits. She didn't want her son's security people on her personal, personal peaceful property. So she sent them away. They'll come at 10 this morning, but Ichiro is family, so his grandmother kept him close. He slept here last night. The grandmother, I asked. Where is she? I asked. But I really needed to pinpoint the location of Ichiro and any and all men. They represented threats that had to be managed swiftly. Grandmother and Ichiro walked uphill together to the temple. Jasna pointed. Hana-san wanted to give thanks for finally meeting her eldest son's daughter. Nakamura-san never allowed his mom to meet Akimi. You may not know or believe this, but she is grateful to you. Because of you, she has heard her own son's voice after many, many years and seen her granddaughter's face for the first time. What will you do? Jasna asked me as though I was capable of extremes. I'll see Akimi before anything. Wearing a dress made from flowers, all flowers, she was on her knees, in the grass, with bare feet, and her paintbrush in her hands. When she turned to look, she dropped the brush and leaped up. She ran and jumped on me, her legs wrapped around my waist, her flowers shedding onto my clothes. She kissed my dirty neck before leaping down. She took two steps backward to look into me. She put two of her fingers in her mouth and her eyes filled with tears as she wept and laughed and smiled like one of the sunflowers. Mayonaka, she whispered. Come here. I pulled her close again, stroked her hair and comforted her. When I released her, I put my hand over her belly and asked what I knew she understood. The question that kept me climbing the hidaka. She smiled and raised two fingers. Two, she said in English. She placed one finger over her lips. Naisho, secret. Akimi, mayonaka, secret. I knew it wasn't a secret. My talented wife was sensitive and smart in so many ways, yet naive in others. Of course, the doctor had informed Nakamura without Akimi realizing. Of course, that is why he forced her to Hokkaido so rapidly and so randomly. Of course, that is why he allowed Akimi to finally meet her grandmother, who he had kept her away from for a lifetime, and whom he had avoided for more than half of his own life. Of course, he planned to extinguish my seed. My seeds. Two. Twins. Oh Allah. Inshallah. put on some shoes. I pointed to her feet. She ran and got her heels from in front of her door and put them on. Then she took them right back off and waved me to come inside the cabin. I followed her, mindful of the time and urgency, 
but remaining calm and cool. In the corner room on the first floor, she had a simple room with two single beds intersecting one another. I could see her touches everywhere. She had begun to decorate it, something I think she would do even if she were in a cave in the mountainside. Pack, I told Takimi. Oka-san, she said softly, her eyes changing from delight to sadness. Wakarimashita, I told her, meaning I understood. Passport, I asked her. Her eyes changed again. Makoto, she spilled out softly. Makoto what, I pushed. Makoto has your passport? Hi, she acknowledged with regret-filled eyes. Why, I asked. Otosan, she spilled out even softer. But this was a race against time. Allah had made an opening, and no matter what, I needed to take my wife and leave. When she lifted a blouse from her pillow, I saw a walkie-talkie lying there. I picked it up. She watched me but didn't say a word, didn't instruct, complain, or protest. Jasta's face appeared, pressed against the bedroom window now. It was half open, allowing in the morning breeze. As I purposely raised the volume on the walkie-talkie and pressed the button and held it so that Chiasa could hear and listen in, Jasta said, that one is ours. Shata has one and Makoto has the other. They won't be able to use these from their hotel. These are not powerful enough. If they're off this large property, they're completely out of range, I told her. You're right. How could you know? We're just using these here on the property. Everyone constantly wants to know where Akimi is. Like yesterday, with her kite making and kite flying, these walkie-talkies turned out to be very handy. When Shata and Makoto reach here, at least one of them will tune in to locate us, she explained. Then she began speaking to Akimi through the screen in Japanese. Akimi spoke back to her in their language, walking over toward me, pressing herself against my back. I think this gesture was more of an answer to whatever Jasna was asking that Akimi's words. It sure felt good to me. Also, now I knew that both Jasna and Akimi did not know that Shata was here on the property. What's next, Jasna asked, still from the outside, looking in. I need to get my backpack. I have Akimi's urn. Jasna gasped. Immediately, she translated to Akimi, who, still pressed against me, hugged me more tightly. Jasna seemed shocked that I had actually brought the urn along, but Akimi seemed confident about me, 100%. Then I want to take Akimi to the next town over so we can have some time to ourselves while we figure out what to do. You will help us, Dusty, right? I leaned on her as I stalled to give Chiasa enough time to get my backpack and also prepare herself to leave here immediately. Of course, I'll do all that I can. We really must hurry. Shata and Makoto will arrive at 10 in a bit less than two hours. It was confirmed in my mind now. The grandmother had sent Shata, the driver, away to the hotel along with at least Makoto and whoever else was on security. Shata drove the men to the hotel. Then, because he was sweating my wife so heavy, he doubled back and hid his car in the bluff by where Akimi had flown the welcome kites. He knew I would show up to get my diamond. He understood her value. The problem for him was that it was my diamond. If he touches it or ever touched it, he'd pay with his life. So far, I had gone mad easy on him because of his relationship to Akimi's family. It worked out better for me that Jasna had no idea that Shada and at least one other man had secretly returned to the property. Jasna, do you have a driver's license? I asked her. Ha, she swiftly confirmed, but very little driving experience, she confessed. Whose station wagon did I see parked by the big house over there? Hana-san's? 
It's grandmother's, she clarified. And it turns out that the big house does have electricity. It's these old cabins that don't. Oh, and there's a working telephone there in the big house also. Thank goodness. She was talking out of a little nervousness, I believed. Let's write a note to grandmother and to Makoto and Ichiro and Shata, letting them know that just you and Akimi went out to shop and take a look around, and that you'll both return by sunset, I told her. Ha, she says swiftly, but where are we actually going? What's the name of the nearby hotel that the security fellows are staying in, I asked. Anna Hotel, she responded. What town is that in? They said it's 30 miles from here in Kushiro. Then I want to go someplace different so that Akimi can feel relaxed. How about Asahikawa? I asked, knowing that it was where the closest airport was located. Ha! That's the airport we flew into, Jocelyn said happily, and then her eyes switched knowingly. Akimi doesn't have her passport. Do you have yours? I asked her. Yes, she said. Okay, come inside. You and Akimi change your clothes. We're going into town, I told her. As though we were headed out for a leisurely day, I knew I had to go easy with Jasna. Akimi is her first priority, but her loyalties are entangled with the whole family, I thought to myself. As I excused myself to allow Jasna to come in and get dressed also, I walked out of hearing distance and spoke to Chiasa by walkie-talkie. As soon as she heard the sound of my voice, she said, I got it. Give me ten more minutes. Don't worry about him. We are about to make friends and Sleeping Beauty is hibernating. I'll meet you in Asahikawa at the biggest hotel by ten. The Grand Hotel, she said, and signed off. With Jasna's handwritten note nailed to grandmother's front door and my backpack in the trunk, Akimi's mother's urn in her hands, me, Akimi, and Jasna left in grandmother's station wagon at 8.45 a.m. It must have been meant to be. The keys had been left in the ignition. Nervously, Jasna drove like the two old men who had brought Chiasa and me part of the way, doing only about 45 miles per hour. On the almost hour-long ride, I heard the story of Akimi's mother's ashes. I heard it twice, once in Japanese as my wife spoke it, and once in English as Jasna translated it. It started off. When my mother was dying, she said she felt more powerful than she had been while she was healthy. She said that in living and being greedy for life, there are many more burdens. Preparing to transcend relieves the soul of all its luggage and hefty, hefty secrets. My mom relayed to me first her true identity. She was never Shiori Nakamura, and pretending to be so had heaped a great pain in her heart. Ju Yun Li. My mom introduced herself to me, her 12 year old daughter, with whom she had spent virtually every available moment of her life. Akimi inhaled, her eyes getting glossy as she continued. Second, she told me the lessons of a mother's love. My mother said she loved me from when I was only an idea in her imagination. She loved me more when I was an egg in her womb. She loved me more when her egg was being fertilized as she secretly lay in the tall grass surrounding her home, bursting with passion and writhing with pleasure 
My mother said she loved me more each day that I became more than an idea and that this intense love is what led her to do whatever it took to bring me into this world properly, to raise me well and keep me safe. A mother's love is like this, she said. A mother will sacrifice all that she has for her gift from God, including her freedom, her dignity, her possessions, and even the food from her mouth. Akimi's tears formed. I could also see through the rear view that Jasna's eyes were flooded. She tried to look only straight ahead at the road. Third, my mother told me that just as she loves me and I love her, she loved her own mother, from whom she was separated at 13 years old. She described a great canyon in her heart and a deep craving in her soul for her mother's embrace, her mother's voice, or even just her mother's scent. She said that only becoming a mother herself could fill a quarter of the canyon in her heart. She said that now that she was dying, her dream was to have her body handed to her mom who was living in South Korea but in an unknown place. She requested to be cremated because she forbid her body to be placed into the ground anywhere in Japan, which she said was an an indescribably beautiful and charming country whose heart was way too cold. She said she would be cold here, even in death, and that any place in Korea would be warm for her, but the best place would be to be placed in the palms of her mother's hands. Four is the number of death on this side of the world, and because my mother was dying and feeling more powerful than ever before, she told me her fourth secret. She said, Akimi, love is better and stronger and more real than all else. Marry the man whom you love and the man who loves you. If he has only one grain of rice, marry him for love and that will feed you. No one can remain married today because they are not married to the one they love. They are married to their sacrifice and pretending to love is too damn painful. Love and build, love and work, love and fight, always love first. Anything placed before love will fail, Omahani said. We rode in silence for a while, the three of us. The weight of Akimi's words and revelations, which seemed to have never been spoken before, also helped Jasna to see and understand. Akimi's words helped Jasna to continue to help us without swinging back and forth between fear, doubt, and resistance. My mind was still shifting all the jigsaw pieces around and fitting things together. I wondered if Akimi could read between the lines of her mother's secrets. Even if she could not understand the implications when she was 12 years young, maybe she could understand them now that she was 16 and a half. It must be difficult, I thought, to discover that you lived your entire life with an identity that is not true. Akimi, my Japanese wife, was obviously Korean. My math was leading up to that conclusion back when I was reading the Nakamura book on my first trip from Tokyo to Kyoto, and now I was almost 100% certain 
that it was a Korean man making Akimi's 15-year-old mom sweat and burst with passion, perhaps only days or weeks before Naoko Nakamura kidnapped her. When I read Ju Yoon Lee's poems, I felt that she was a young woman who had been loved and made love to in an unforgettable way, but not nearly enough. Her words were laced with a longing for something she had known, but had somehow lost along the way. I triple-checked that the Asahi Grand Hotel was the largest hotel in Asahikawa. I handed Jasna 25,000 yen up front to check us in for one night, although I had not one intention to stay. She did. She and Akimi rode up in one elevator. Jasna was purposely wearing my backpack as I rode up in a separate elevator. In the one-bedroom suite, I told Jasna and Akimi to make themselves comfortable as I dug in my backpack to get fresh everything. Akimi's eyes followed my, my every move. I handed Jasna the television remote. I understood what Akimi must have been going through these past few years and these most recent highly emotional days. I knew that after losing the people and things that she believed in the most, she was left believing in me. I felt and I knew what she wanted to do, and now I knew where a lot of her heat and passion and swing was coming from. I knew how come she could draw such emotional creations and pull out such intensity and cause anyone looking too close to feel something strong. As I looked back into her eyes, I wanted to do the same thing she did, but this time I would complete the mission first. In the hot shower, I had nothing but exit routes running through my mind, ticket exchanges and purchases and costs, and of course, the sound of the clock ticking in my ear. Fresh clothes, fresh cut. I walked out through the bedroom door into the sitting room. I picked up my watch from the desk and clamped it on. It was 9.50 a.m. Jasna, you know that we need to fly out of here immediately, right? I was looking straight into her eyes with all the honesty I had. She lowered her eyes and placed both of her hands between her legs and raised her feet up on her toes. Ha, she said, but I can't leave yet. My sculptures have just arrived here and I promised Mr. Nakamura, she said softly. I know, I told her solidly. You can't leave right now. But Akimi and I must. If we work together, we can go. You can stay until your promise to Mr. Nakamura is cleared and everybody can be safe. I was speaking in a peaceful, even tone. What do you want me to do, she asked. Lend Akimi your passport. When she and I are safe, we'll mail it back to you immediately. But how, she asked, thinking of the difference in their skin and hair, I'm certain. Two phenomenal artists, a sculptor and a painter? I'll leave that up to your imagination. But Akimi's New York travel visa is on her passport. I don't have a New York visa in my passport, Jasna said. If we go back to grandmother's, I could figure out a way to get her passport back from Makoto somehow. Maybe I can convince Ichiro to listen to what I say. He likes me, but it will take some time. No one wants Akimi to leave. Akimi began speaking softly to Jasna. The dialogue went back and forth as I agonized over the passport visa scenario. I thought I had it beat with the Akimi Jasna switchup I came up with. Akimi says that she will definitely leave here with you now, but that she wants you to take her to Busan, Jasna said. Busan, I asked. Busan, South Korea. It's a less than two hours flight from Tokyo, and she wouldn't need a visa and neither would you. Akimi said that she wants to return her mother's ashes to her mother before she goes to New York with you. She says that once she goes to New York with you, she will stay there with you for good, Jasna explained. 
How will she find her Korean grandmother after all these years, I asked, feeling suddenly heavy with the thought of another odyssey in another country where I knew no one and could not speak even one word of the language. That was the trade, Jocelyn said, discovering the name and address of of her Korean grandmother with the telephone number so she could meet her was the promise that kept Akimi cooperating with her father. It was the only thing that ha- that he had left that Akimi wanted so desperately. It was the reason she remained silent and rode quietly all the way to the airport and on to Hokkaido. She could have called the police or run for help, but she didn't because her father promised to give her the information if she just followed his orders. And did he? I asked with disbelief. He did. She has it now. But then her father had Makoto confiscate Akimi's passport so that she could not leave Japan with you while he was away on his Asian tour, nor could she leave for the Korea trip without him. Also, her credit and bank cards are canceled. And she has almost no money or clothing, and she's stuck all the way out here, of course. I told you, he is quite clever and extremely determined. How do you know if she was given the right information and address, I asked, now that I was wiser at this game? She has already called. We also called from here while you were in the shower. They're all waiting to meet Akimi over there. They are not waiting for Nakamura-san. It seems that they hate him. You know, there are problems between the Koreans and Japanese, Jocelyn said, not realizing that by now, I knew more than everyone else in this room about what was really going on with my wife and her family and their history and culture. Of course, I'll take her. She's my wife, and I'll take her wherever she needs to go, I said, and I meant it. It was heavy, but it made sense to me. Let me allow her to fulfill her mother's final request. Let me put Akimi's heart and soul at ease so that all that was left was for her to continue to love me and love our seeds. When I thought of my two babies, I said, Jasna, you are the key to make sure no one on either side in any family gets hurt. All I want is my wife and nothing else, I reminded her, calmly and carefully. With your passport, we can get out of Japan. Once we are in Korea, we can send you your passport and you can send us Akimi's passport as soon as you get Makoto to give it up. Are you with me? I asked her solemnly. There was a pause. Moments later, she handed me her passport. I opened it, looked, and then glanced at my wife a few times, comparing. I have cosmetics here in my purse. I'll need scissors, Jasna said, looking straight into me as though she were uncertain if I really wanted her to go through with this. Her eyes were asking me, exactly how far will you go? Akimi, I will be right back, I said to my wife. Stay inside, okay? I slid Jasna's passport into my pocket to be certain. She wouldn't change her mind. Then I looked at Jasna. My clippers are in the water closet. I knew she understood. In the elevator, I pulled out her passport to take a look at her photo. Jasna had short hair in the picture, but not as short as her hair is now. At this point, I'd take my wife, even without her long, beautiful, dark hair. In the lobby, I exited the elevator as Chiasa was revolving through the revolving doors. She and I were telepathic now, as she had suggested the second day we met. She stared at me to signal that we should meet discreetly. I veered off toward the washroom. She stalled a bit and did the same. In the Japanese <clears throat> in the Japanese Toto toilet, each toilet has a separate closed-in room. I opened the door and Chiasa stepped in. I checked to see if anyone saw and then I entered also. It was she and I in the tight Toto closet. What's all this? I asked, referring to our breakup and our pretending not to know one another. 
it's better this way, she said, knowing I was listening for more of an answer. Shata drove me here. We're friends. Friends, I repeated. He believes that I saved him. I removed his blindfold and pulled your washcloth out of his mouth and untied him. So I guess I did, she said coyly. He went for that, I asked. Easily. You should have seen him guzzling that water I offered him, she smiled. And I handed him the keys, telling him that I found them right outside the vehicle. What else did you tell him? I told him I was there to buy some lavender from Serenity Fields when I saw him in distress. So I stopped to help him. She was looking straight into me. So where is he now, I asked. He left to go get Makoto from his hotel. So are, so you're flying back to Osaka with us, I told her. How will you two leave Japan once you get to Osaka International without Akimi's passport? Chiasa questioned my question. And then she answered it. Don't tell me, she gasped. Cool fucking idea, she said with subdued excitement. What a costume. Lucky you, you won't need it. Then, from out of her waste pack came Akimi's passport. She handed it to me. Sleeping Beauty is Makoto, she said. I searched his pockets. I had my gloves on, of course. It was easy. Usually, when they tranquilize a wild bear with that stuff I used, the trappers pull his lips up and check his gums and gawk at his teeth and take a blood sample and really invade his whole seven-foot body while it lays there lifeless. Sometimes they tag him. When he wakes up, he doesn't even realize he's been raided and is wearing a tracking device that won't come off no matter what he does, she told me in an excited whisper. So why is Shada headed to Makoto's hotel? He's just a neighborhood boy, not a ninja, not Nakamura's security, not too smart. I mixed him up a little. I was stalling for you. Will he call the police? I don't think he'll call. He'll want to save face with Makoto. Makoto will want to save face with Nakamura. Nakamura will want to save face with the media and everyone else who knew him. Besides, Makoto won't know what hit him. He saw you, and he knows it wasn't you that shot him. He has no witnesses. It was just you and me and him. We two are definitely we two are definitely not telling, she said, without a shred of doubt. So, you'll come to the airport and leave with us, I said to her. I'm invisible today. That won't be possible, she said with a pleasant but serious smile, her white teeth glistening. I'll take the longer route. I catch a bus from here to Sapporo. I'll use my same return ticket to Osaka. I'll get our stuff from the lockers. Oh yeah, that's right. Give me your key for the Kyoto lockers. She held her hand out. You're not going to Kyoto, right? You'll get to Osaka International Airport and then to New York, Chiasa asked. Nah, I'll go to Osaka and then to Korea, I told her. Korea? She exclaimed. Long story. But I have to go there first. Keep it between me and you, I said. I have an idea, she said. Let's fly to Osaka, and then we can take the boat from the port in Osaka to Busan, Korea. It's better. When Nakamura looks for you and he checks all the airports, there will be nothing. Once you get to another country, he loses his pull. He can't do anything to you two over there. I know there's a boat. I rode it over one time when I had a four-day break from ninja camp, she said, remembering. We went to Busan for shopping. The boat, mm, the ferry to Busan is called the Pan Star Line. When she stopped reminiscing, she found me looking at her. I was still stuck on, let's take a boat to Korea. I could feel her feeling attached to me. I could feel myself feeling attached to her also, but it was complicated and impossible for now. She knew it also. Maybe that's why she was invisible for the day, to stay away, so our feelings would not grow. And for the first time in my life, as a young man, 
I understood something about my father, which I could never understand up until this second. I used to question, how could he have a woman as beautiful and wise and complete and sweet as Uma and still have space for a second wife to love and share with? Now, standing still in a tight toilet room about to part permanently with my lucky charm, my pretty Puma, I had to ask myself, how could I not love her? I'm just joking, Chiasa said softly about coming along with me and Akimi to Korea. I have to pay you I have to pay you your money for the extra days that you worked I told her instead of money maybe you can give me something else she said something like what I asked I got to think about it something like one wish whatever I ask you for how could I agree to that I asked her it could be something that conflicts with my beliefs and then I couldn't do it I wouldn't ask you for something that conflicts with your beliefs Give me a little trust, can't you? She said, exasperated. All right, then. If it doesn't conflict with my beliefs and it doesn't bankrupt me, I'll do it for you. I made the rare promise to her. She smiled hugely. Okay, so I'll see you in Korea. How long are you staying there? She asked me. And what city are you going to? She asked. Busan. I'm headed to Busan, but I don't know for how long, I told her. I have your number, and I know where you live. Then Chiasa looked uncertain. Why? Why can't you trust me just a little, I asked her. I can, she powered up. Besides, I have your movie camera and some more of your stuff, so I know you'll call me, she joked. I looked at her without a smile to let her know that my stuff wasn't the reason I would call. Leave out of this hotel when I leave out, I told her. If you want to remain invisible, okay come to the airport. I'll buy your ticket. Fly back to Osaka on the same flight so I can know you're safe. At Osaka International Airport, we go our separate ways until I call you, I said. When we meet, we'll even up and exchange everything that needs to be exchanged. She agreed. (laughs) Thank you.